Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Clinical Pharmacist podcast. We are continuing with our clinical series in today's episode. Today, we are focusing on the clinical area of diabetes. We have a very special guest with us, Fatiha Yasmin, who has an independent prescriber qualification in diabetes. She has a special interest in the area, and she has a number of years of experience running clinics in this area, and hopefully we can have a fruitful discussion. Welcome, Yasmin. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Lovely to have you. And of course, we have Sarah, my co-host, who also happens to have her independent prescribing qualification in diabetes. Sarah, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me again. Lovely to have you. Right, so let's get straight into it. I think obviously, you know, diabetes is an area where I think every pharmacist working in primary care should have a good understanding of. But we know it can be, you know, quite a vast area and can be a little bit overwhelming for some pharmacists with all the different therapies available, all the different targets. I think there's a lot of information to understand before you can, you know, really go go into running clinics. So before we, you know, go into the clinical aspect, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself, Fatiha, your experiences and and how you ended up where you are and how you got into running diabetes clinics? Yes. So I've been a pharmacist for around uh, eight years now with the IP qualification uh, about three years now started off uh, with Babylon, so covering uh, all aspects, uh, including diabetes, mind ailments, lots and lots of various things before quite swiftly moving on uh, with CPS to focus on diabetes only as it was one of my personal sort of aspirations to do. So I have been running clinics now for coming up to two years now remotely, which has been a really nice experience. I think with diabetes in particular, the more experience you gain, that's how you grasp sort of so many aspects and how you get sort of really comfortable with prescribing in diabetes. So yeah, and I'm still doing that. Okay, lovely. Thank you for that. To kick this off then, can you tell us what type of pharmacist can run diabetes clinics? What does it take to be able to run them competently and safely? What does a pharmacist need to know before they get into it? Yeah. So how I started, obviously touching up on nice guidelines for diabetes that's your that's your crux but obviously there's various comorbidities associated with diabetes which you've got to be quite comfortable in because you will be managing them within the diabetic annual review so that's things like hypertension primary and secondary cardiovascular disease prevention lipid management chronic kidney disease lifestyle management is a big one so nutrition is involved in that and then you've got lots of other areas which you could be tapping into, like neuropathic pain, looking at hypothyroidism in particular, deficiencies which can affect how the HbA1c, the diabetic result that we use, comes through. So anemia, vitamin B12 deficiencies. So there's lots of other separate pathways that I think would be really beneficial to always have a background knowledge of to help you be really effective in diabetic reviews and to treat the patient quite holistically as well with diabetes. Depression is a really big one as well. I'm not sure if I mentioned that. So that would be a good area to uh, also be hopefully competent in. In terms of how I sort of got there, NICE and CKS were the the core resource basis for me. But in terms of more specialised diabetes topics, um, Diabetes UK has lots of healthcare professional resources available and courses as well and primary care diabetes society lots of really good information and diabetes on the net is also a really good one 
it's more geared towards specialists, but I think it's really good to to read around the topic on that kind of level. Mm, fantastic. Thank you for that. I think um, you've given us a lovely range of different resources. So by the sounds of it, it probably started, you know, with self-directed study and obviously you you did your IP as well. And then you went on to do, you know, structured courses as well, which I think is, is a very good approach to take. Um, I think, Sarah, you had a question, didn't you? Yeah. So these days, obviously, we've got loads of pharmacists, um, experienced and non-experienced, IP and non-IP, working in primary care. And some of them may be expected to just run diabetes clinics now because a lot of people know that pharmacists can do it. It would be good to know, I suppose, obviously, a lot of the pharmacists that do run diabetes clinics would usually have done an IP in diabetes. But what can like a non-IP pharmacist do in terms of supporting with diabetes? Do they need the qualification to run diabetes clinics or can they also run the clinics and to what extent compared to a prescribing pharmacist in diabetes? I think non-IP pharmacists will be very useful with diabetes being quite heavily lifestyle based and half of your consultation can be purely discussion around lifestyle, not necessarily a meds management thing. Non-IPs can definitely have a really, really big impact with regards to just providing that high quality lifestyle advice, but also titration. So we, we often start diabetics on sort of low doses to err on the side of caution. And there is that that titration that can take, you know, every three to six months, um, they are titrated up, which they can do, not necessarily yeah. an IP can do. So, so we have annual reviews, but then we set the interim reviews, which the non-IP can take over if it's a case yeah. of titrating upwards. Also, obviously assessing tolerability in the patient when they start these medications, especially older people who often be on lots of other medication. They may not tolerate some medication and they can offer alternatives as well. And also if they feel like something does need to be switched, they can back that back to a prescriber who can uh, with the information make the switch i think they're very good for education purposes for the patient in terms of providing them with the resources for example hypo management so you know they can discuss where the where the sugars have been recently in a patient see what the hypo risk is and either manage or if they feel like medication needs to be adjusted down um, in that case they can do that as well yeah yeah, I, I think that they can do mostly what I, probably I can do, except for, you know, issuing those medications. So there really is a very big overlap between what we can do. So yeah, thumbs up to non-IPs as well. <laughs> and if I can just add to that, of what, what you've said as well is, um, you know, the guidance that I'm sure you've heard this as well from us is that what we do um, at Clinical Pharmacist Solution, you know, because we have a variety of pharmacists and a very a wide skill mix some are independent prescribers and some are not. And the main distinction that we highlight is that as a non-IP, just make sure you're not diagnosing the patient with a new condition. So for example, you know, if the patient has symptoms of diabetes or, you know, you, they've got the odd high raised um, HbA1c or, you know, a random glucose sample, just make sure you're not actually as a non-IP diagnosing the patient with diabetes. But as you said, if the patient has already been diagnosed, um, especially for those patients, I think, who are stable. So you do need to understand what a stable diabetes patient looks like. You can certainly help with uh, some of the annual reviews. And also, I think when it comes to reauthorizing the repeat medication, the diabetic medication, uh, when you're doing a note-based review, just making sure that all those checks are being done. 
And, you know, while we're talking about checks, um, can you remind our audience, what are the main things that a pharmacist would be looking at in terms of the annual review? What are the main considerations? Yeah, so I've got a list here because it's quite big in the annual review. <laughs> look at. But A1C, HbA1c is our indicator of diabetic control. Obviously, that's a reflection of the sugar control over the previous three months. So if it is a high, it's always best to discuss how the patient has been in the past three months to rule out any sort of false elevated highs. For example, stress levels can, can really raise a HbA1c if they've been quite acutely ill recently. So you've always got to take that into uh, consideration of the patient status really at that time. We look at blood pressure. So in terms of target, it's similar to overall NICE targets, 140 over 90 is what we aim for. In patients with chronic kidney disease, we would like it to be a bit lower, um, 130. Systolic, uh, just as it improves overall kidney health with tighter blood pressure control. Lipids is a really, really big one to look at, especially there's new cough indicators out now for specific lipid requirements, which is really beneficial, I think, for diabetes as well. So we try to aim for a total cholesterol of four or below with diabetes, although with quaff, five is sort of the target. So sort of quaff and, and nice guidelines don't necessarily tally up it's actually easier to meet quaff targets so if you've met the quaff targets then you're sort of heading on the right track there in terms of checking kidney health so we use the egfr and also the urine and albumin creatinine ratio egfr can be again quite affected sort of on an acute basis as well for example if the patient is quite dehydrated on the day of the blood test it can show up as low so the urine acr uh, result actually is a better indicator of if there is any kidney damage and that would be a, a better one to go by if you are assessing any ckd and sort of considering any treatment options and to look at the trend in the uacr um, obviously, we always discuss lifestyle. It's such a big part of diabetes. So I really do feel that a quite detailed discussion in, in lifestyle and also the patient's motivation in having a good lifestyle should be discussed in length. I've also sort of looked into motivational coaching uh, just to help be effective really in the, in the reviews. And I, I do find patients are responsive and very receptive to that. A lot of them are on board with uh, lifestyle changes over medication changes. So if you can tap into how to motivate them better, it, it's a win-win. Um, mental health. So it, it's a bit of a touchy one with mental health. A lot of patients don't really expect you to discuss that in a diabetic review, but I think you can suss a lot in that golden minute in your opening consultation by simply asking really open-ended questions. The patient can tell you actually any acute problems and if they are feeling down, they will mention it. And you've also got to um, think about how mental health can affect eating patterns and eating behaviours and, you know, refer accordingly if you need to, if you feel like they need dietetic input or mental health input to hopefully resolve any eating issues. That should be addressed as well. In terms of other external checks, so we always look at if their retinopathy has been screened for uh, in the last year. And a foot check has been done as well in the last year. Again, any necessary referrals should be made based on those screening checks. In terms of bloods, there's there's sort of, a, in terms of annual bloods, there's a whole host of bloods that are done. Uh, I've got a list here. So we've got HbA1c, 
Uh, we've got the kidney status, a full blood count, and that's to detect possibly anything that could be skewing that HBA. One C results such as anemia, LFTs. That's probably more to do with uh, statin monitoring, but also LFTs can uh, sort of help us manage lipid lowering as well. So when we do the lipid check, uh, for example, a lot of people who are overweight t- tend to have quite high uh, triglycerides, which can actually affect the HbA1c. So. That's a good indicator, the lipids and the LFT together. We check vitamin B12 levels. That's probably mainly because sort of being on metformin long-term can reduce vitamin B12. So it's always good to check that on, which most patients with diabetes are on metformin for. And thyroid, yeah, we check the thyroid every year as well. So definitely it's good to have a really sound knowledge base on all those bloods. Um, Again, if I can direct you to a good resource that I found particularly useful, there's a really good module on CPPE about interpreting bloods that's really, really in-depth. I found it very useful. So yeah, that that's generally what I go through. So I discuss all the bloods with the patient and then obviously we discuss what to do about it with the patient. I find my consultations are very patient-centered, so I try to empower the, the patient to help them manage and take responsibility or control over their diabetic control because half of it is their lifestyle management as well. So discussions are always laying out the options for them, discussing pros and cons, seeing what would be more suitable for them. And then sort of coming back with what I would think would be suitable, but also giving them the decision, the final decision. And yeah, coming to an agreement. And I think it's worked really, really well. I think patients are very appreciative of the fact that they're given options. So yeah, I've had good feedback basically from patients sort of on that. So that's really amazing. I feel like you've shown that even though it's like a quaff related target, you've taken that away. And you're showing it's not a tick box exercise. It's like a patient focused exercise. And I feel like if people are doing diabetic reviews out there like you, patients will see improvements in their lifestyle and their diabetes control. So amazing, honestly. (laughs) Yeah. Is there anything that you find that you can't do as a pharmacist? Or is there any point where you do start thinking about referring on to like the GP or secondary care? specialist nurses and what would trigger those referrals? Yeah, so in the practice that I work with, we do have a specific SOP for referral criteria. But as a whole, I would say patients who are sort of maxed out on oral meds, you would sort of consider referring if, you know, they are adhering to main lifestyle advice, I would definitely refer. So in terms of a HbA1c, normally over 75 millimole per mole or 9%. That's the sort of cutoff point where we'd refer on. Anyone requiring insulin or injectable GLP-1s at the moment are under shared care and go straight to the uh, specialist nurses. Type 1s, as far as I know, should be under consultant care regardless. So if we see anyone who are not under their radar, we always do refer. But we always do the, the annual reviews anyway with them. Anyone who's sort of uh, having very frequent hypos, especially if they're of the older generation and they're more high risk, uh, we do like to refer because they do need more intense monitoring and the DSNs are available to provide that sort of on a fortnightly basis, which we may not be able to do. And anyone where you'd probably question whether that it is a classic type 2 diabetes or it could be another form of diabetes, in that sense, you'll sort of request specialist hospital uh, bloods to be done 
but it probably will need to be confirmed by a consultant just to make sure. Uh, yeah, so mainly it, it's put more the, the people who need the injectable side of therapy. That's when we we would refer. Okay. No, thank you, Fatah. I think um, you've given us, you know, very comprehensive information. Uh, hopefully our listeners could take, um, you know, quite a lot away from this podcast. You went into the, you know, all the checks that are required in a medication review, you know, when to refer, you listed everything. And I think that's really important for pharmacists to understand that. And, you know, I'm really glad that you highlighted the role that a pharmacist can have in terms of lifestyle interventions and diet. I know from personal experience as well, especially those patients who are, you know, perhaps maybe newly diagnosed or borderline and, you know, they need to have that initial chat with a healthcare professional. You know, I can't recount the number of times I've had those conversations where I inform the patient that, you know, it it is down to your um, diet. And you'd be surprised that a lot of patients don't actually understand that. They just think, you know, it's genetic or, or something like that. When you, when you just explain to them, if you just cut down the sugar, it seems quite obvious. But um, sometimes patients don't actually understand where the sugar comes from in their diet as well. You know, their diet is a lot of carbs, so they're having cereals and sandwiches and pastas and potatoes. And taking a few minutes out of the consultation, to educate them about that, you know, and let them know that, you know, they can really bring their HbA1c down significantly just by making, um, you know, those changes in their diet. And then, you know, three or four months down the line, you see them again and their HB1C has significantly dropped. So I think pharmacists have a huge role to play there. And yeah, so as you said, patient education is key. So I think we'll wrap up there. But before we close, what advice would you give to a pharmacist who would like to run diabetes clinics? Because I think you've got into this and I think you're doing fantastic and you've had great feedback uh, from not only the colleagues around you, but obviously the patients as well. What advice can you give to other pharmacists looking to embark on this career path as well? I would say not to get overwhelmed because there is so much to cover with diabetes. But I think as you get into it, and that is probably the hardest step, st- starting with it, you'll just ask yourself questions along the way. And that's how you'll pick up the extra little bits of knowledge that you need. As long as you've got the the crux of the base knowledge in terms of diabetes, blood pressure, lipid management, chronic kidney disease. It is actually not too bad uh, once you get into it and, and it's those little questions that, you know, you just research when the case comes around. I'd also say consultation skills are really, really important with diabetes. It can be a touchy subject, especially if you're discussing things like weight and diet. Always sort of take the patient holistically as possible. Sort of what kind of factors, you know, is going on in their life that is that is leading to them having a poor diet or being stressed or just not managing their their lifestyle very well. Always be quite empathetic uh, to your patients, especially the older generation. It comes to a point where they're being very very good, but their diabetic control is still high, and that's purely down to pancreatic exhaustion. So we we've got to bit sort of try to always be on the patient's side. So consultation skills always always good to just try to be as patient-centered as you can and that's how to make the patient receptive to you they can listen to you and not do anything based on what you've told them or they can listen to you and actually you know say oh, okay she, she's trying to help me here or they're trying to help me here let's do something about it so I would say definitely before you start have a really comprehensive knowledge so you're not overwhelmed when, when you're faced with, with the clinics but when it does start you will pick up things along the way and you don't have to know everything. 
as long as you know the basic, the foundation, you will pick it up and through experience and cases, you will be more comfortable knowing what to do. So I would recommend it. (laughs) Fantastic. Thank you, Fatah. I think um, that's fantastic advice you've given there. And, you know, all of those points that you mentioned, I definitely agree with. Just get, get into it and just, you know, one step at a time. And as you said, so many other sort of chronic diseases or conditions can overlap. So I definitely uh, agree with the advice that you've given. So yeah, I think that's pretty much it for today. That's all we can cover. We do have training that will be launched um, via Clinical Pharmacist Academy. So if anyone's interested in that, uh, please watch this space. We will make some announcements soon. But thank you so much, Fataha, for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us. It's been really insightful. And uh, thank you as well, Sarah, for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.